0: we can make a difference. 2
1: three, cha-cha-cha. Hey, my frame, where's my pleasing arc? Spaghetti arms, would you give me some tension, please?
2: You're invading my dance space. This is my dance space, that's yours.
1: That's cha-cha.
0: In a world overflowing with movies, someone to separate the bad from the good.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 91, Dirty Dancing. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Um, And as always, whether you're a returning listener or a brand new listener, you are very welcome here at Verbal Diorama. I am so happy to have you with us. And obviously, as I always say, I hope that you're all keeping healthy and well. And so we're just going to jump straight into this one uh this is an episode on dirty dancing uh this is dirty dancing definite fan favorite and cultural behemoth and a bit of a strange thing happened when i scheduled dirty dancing into my calendar and at this point it would probably be a very good opportune moment to introduce a very special guest mark asquith he is uh and and mark feel free to step in at any point if i get any of the following incorrect, or you or you wish to elaborate? Yes. <laughs> so he is the CEO and co-founder of Rebel Base Media, which is the home of podcast host Captivate, uh, as well as the host of the Podcast Accelerator and Spark of Rebellion, a Star Wars podcast. Uh, I mean, is there anything that I've missed? there
1: Mark? Not really, I'm uh, I'm just a podcast guy and a pop culture guy, so this is just perfect <laughs> really, this is the perfect fit for me to uh, spend a bit of time talking about a movie, this is fantastic, no that's exactly what I do. Cool,
2: well you are very welcome here at Verbal Diorama, probably a lot of people who are listening are probably a bit unsure who you are, <laughs> so I really wanted to kind of make it clear, you know, who you are, you're kind of a big deal, would you say? <laughs>
1: No, 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 no. It just, I I, I look like a big deal on Twitter because I've got some photography that's got lighting and uh, got one of those little ticks. But no, I I just work with podcasters like you um, and just host podcast shows um, about geek culture. And and, and, and I'm fortunate enough to work in podcasting and and, and the platform that that I own, you know, helps podcasters like you to get their shows out into the wild as well. So certainly not a big deal. You know, I'm just sat in my bedroom recording this like everyone else really. (laughs)
2: Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to say that Verbal Diorama is now hosted with Captivate. That is not the reason why you're here. It's not like we've done a deal or anything, you know, you give me hosting and I'll give you a guest slot. That's not what has happened here. But just for the listeners to kind of understand how this came about, because it was a bit of a strange situation, I was scheduling Dirty Dancing because I've always wanted to cover Dirty Dancing because it's kind of been a bit of a favourite of mine ever since I saw it when I was a kid. And I just happened upon a tweet from you which said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I just watched Dirty Dancing for the first time and it's amazing. Uh, and so I, I just kind of reached out to you on DM and I think I just kind of came out and asked you, would you come onto my podcast to talk about dirty dancing? And and I did not expect in any way, shape, or form for you to say yes, because I never expect anyone to say yes to me. But you did. <laughs> and and that's kind of why you're here.
1: <laughs> oh, it's fun. Why would you not? Why would you not talk about stuff like this? This is um it's a total no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm in for it. Always. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You were completely honest with me. (laughs) You did kind of tell me that you've never listened to this podcast, uh, which is fine. Literally doesn't bother me. But I just thought it was a really interesting and unique experience for me and for this podcast to kind of have someone on who, A, literally has no idea what he's letting himself in for. Apologies in advance. But B, someone who has a completely unique and different point of view to someone like me who grew up watching this movie as opposed to you who's literally just seen it. And I just thought that was a really kind of fascinating and different aspect to looking at this movie. And so I'm really happy that you're here, (laughs) by the way. Because I think this is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Good. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Like I say, you you don't know what you've let yourself in for. No, I'm joking. It's it's going to be a good time. What we'll probably just do is we'll probably just kind of jump straight into it, to be honest. So I've got some watermelons. (laughs) Do you fancy carrying (laughs) them with me into this Dirty Dancing discussion?
1: Who knows what I'll discover when I finally deliver these watermelons. I'm in. Count me in. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Okay, cool.
0: You dancing. Every place we go. The dancing sets her free. Be 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 Best strong Pictures baby. presents Dirty Dancing. She thought it would be just another summer vacation. Who's that? Oh, them. They're the dance people. But it turns out to be the time of her life. Watch me now! Hey. I can't even do the meringue He teaches her what she can do. I don't want you to have anything to do with those people again. Baby, I don't see you running up to Daddy telling him I'm your guy.
1: Well, with my father, it's complicated. I will tell him I... I...
0: don't believe you, baby. She shows him all he can be.
1: You gotta stop it now.
0: I know what I'm doing, Penny.
1: I'm scared of
0: everything. Most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. What they learn from each other feels too good to be wrong. dancing starring Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey and Cynthia Rhodes. Get ready for the time of your life. In
2: 1963, Frances Baby Houseman holidays with her family to Kellerman's Resort in upstate New York's Catskill Mountains. Baby has grown up in privileged surroundings and all expect her to go on to college, join the Peace Corps and save the world before marrying a doctor just like her father. At Kellerman's, Baby meets and falls in love with dance instructor Johnny Castle and learns life is about more than the Peace Corps. It's about having the time of your life. I mean, it's just... You just you just want to burst into like some sort of song and dance number just listening to that. Okay, so we'll quickly go through the cast of this movie. Obviously, it's a bit of an iconic cast. We have the late Patrick Swayze as Johnny Castle, Jennifer Grey as Frances Baby Houseman, the late Jerry Orbach as Jake Houseman, Cynthia Rhodes as Penny Johnson, Jane Brooker as Lisa Houseman, Jack Weston as Max Kellerman, Kelly Bishop as Marjorie Houseman, and Lonnie Price as Neil Kellerman. It was written by Eleanor Bergstein and it was directed by Emil Ardelino. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to kind of jump at some point into the future and I'm going to go through a bit of production history and then I'm going to be right back hello past me and mark this is future me and i'm going to very quickly go through the production history for dirty dancing because it's honestly delicious uh so writer Eleanor bergstein based the screenplay on her own childhood as the younger daughter of a jewish doctor from new york and the family often holidayed in the catskill mountains her nickname as a young girl was indeed baby She would take part in dance competitions while on these holidays and the dancing was, I mean, clearly dirty. Uh, Basically not the sort of dancing that your grandparents would approve of. In 1984, she pitched her idea to MGM and was teamed with producer Linda Gottlieb. Bergstein had finished her screenplay by November 1985, but by that point, the management structure at MGM had changed, which meant it basically wasn't going to be going anywhere at MGM. So, the finished script was frequently rejected by many other studios until Eleanor Bergstein met with Vestron Pictures, which was a spin-off of Vestron Video, a distributor, and basically they wanted to start making their own movies. Um, And this was after Vestron Video increasingly found it harder to acquire distribution rights to other movies. For Vestron to get involved, they'd have to cut their proposed budget in half, uh, they also hired first-time director Emil Ardelino. He'd read the script, he felt passionate about the project, and basically they formed a lovely little team. So Bergstein, Gottlieb and Ardolino, they worked together to present Dirty Dancing the Screenplay to Vestron's president and vice president, who agreed to greenlight the project, and this was going to become Vestron Pictures' first feature film. Kenny Ortega was chosen as a choreographer. Uh, He's obviously gone on to become a director in his own right. And while they couldn't find a suitable location, shoot in the Catskills, this was because by the mid-80s, many of these summer holiday resorts had closed down. They ended up finding two locations, and these two locations are really important to the movie. They are the Mountain Lake Hotel in Pembroke, Virginia, and Lake Law, North Carolina. And the beauty of this film is in the location choices and thanks to the very clever editing blend together so beautifully that it genuinely makes it feel like this is one location filming for dirty dancing started in september 1986 lasted just 43 days the production battled bad weather freezing outdoor temperatures and sweltering indoor temperatures mainly due to the large equipment getting so hot Delays in filming meant that they had to spray paint autumnal leaves green so as to look like this movie was still set in the summer. When it came to casting, Emile Ardellino wanted to hire dancers who could act as opposed to actors who would need to rely on stand-in dancers. It was important that the dancing could be seen up close and personal and that the actors were actually the ones doing the dancing. Jennifer Grey was the daughter of Academy Award winning actor Joel Grey and had studied acting and dance at the Dalton School in Manhattan, but technically wasn't a trained classical dancer. Uh, But this suited the role of baby. Patrick Swayze had classical ballet experience and completed formal dance training at the Joffrey Ballet and Harkness Ballet Schools. Originally, he'd wanted to be an American footballer, however a knee injury had put a halt on his football dreams. This knee injury would mean that once he started acting professionally, he had a no-dancing clause in his contract. This all changed when he read for the part of Johnny Castle and he loved the part and so he took the part despite the fact that he would have to dance. And this was not the first time Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze had been cast together. They'd worked on Red Dawn together in 1984 and they'd not gotten on particularly well during the filming of Red Dawn. Reportedly Swayze rarely broke character on the set of Red Dawn, meaning that Jennifer Grey couldn't stand him constantly barking orders like a military general. When it came to screen testing for Dirty Dancing, Grey was hesitant to test with Swayze because of their previous history, but their chemistry together while practicing a lift, whether that comes from extreme lust or indeed extreme dislike, was undeniable and this chemistry would propel the movie forward. During filming, the fact that Swayze was a trained dancer and Grey was not was a bit of a bone of contention on set as Swayze would become visibly frustrated when Grey couldn't pick things up straight away, Famously, the training montage scene where Johnny runs his hand down her arm and baby laughs was genuine. Swayze's frustration is real and, honestly, it's a sort of reaction that you could act out a million times and it would never feel as natural as it does in that scene. I mean, it turns out tension and arguments make things hotter than not. Their complex relationship would continue throughout filming. However, after the film's release, they were nothing but warm and complimentary of each other. Patrick Swayze would do all of his own stunts as well, despite his injury. Uh, He injured his knee so badly, falling off a log during the balancing scene that he had to go to hospital and have fluid drained from it. I'll talk about the budget later, but importantly for this movie, it wrapped production both on time and on budget, despite the setbacks that they had experienced. The rough cut of the movie was viewed by Vestral executives, who unanimously disliked it. They thought it would be an immediate flop, And the abortion subplot was going to be the biggest issue. Reportedly, producer Aaron Russo's reaction to his screening was burn the negative and collect the insurance. That is a direct quote. The abortion subplot would also put off potential sponsors, but Vestron, despite the backlash, continued with the release for August 1987 with a view to have it in cinemas for a weekend and then put it out on home video. More on this later, but let's go back to the past for the rest of the discussion with Mark on Dirty Dancing. And I'm right back. So, okay, what this episode is going to be structured like is going to be very different to an episode that I would normally put out. And that's basically because when a guest does occasionally pop on this podcast it, you have to kind of structure it a bit differently i just thought it would be nice to have a bit of a discussion about the whole dirty dancing experience but i want to know from you mark as someone who's only recently saw this for the first time how did you come about it how did dirty dancing kind of fall into your life
1: yeah so it's a bit of a funny one this one like i'm a, i was born in 1982 so i was just i was becoming aware of things like Dirty Dancing and Back to the Future and Predator and all of these kind of classic 80s movies that came out between, I don't know, let's say 1980 and, and, and maybe even even like 93, 94. They're the, the very clearly 80s style movies, when, you know, until the mid-90s. So I was just always very much around kind of the 80s vibe and, and, and you know, the, those are the movies that, that I really class as, you know, the ones that I see as the classics in my life. Um so dirty dancing was always that one that I was always aware of and always pegged as just being the classic it's not for me, that's for girls as you're growing up. You know, because it's it's a bit rom-commy, or so I thought, and it's a little bit mushy, or so I thought. And it, it, it's not until a lot later when I really started digging into more Swayze stuff, you know, the last 10, 15 years, where I thought, oh wait a sec. Why would someone like Patrick Swayze do something that that was of the ilk that I'd assumed Dirty Dancing was? Because it, 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 he's, he just wasn't that guy. You know, when you look at Roadhouse and you look at even even um, things like Point Break and, and just Donnie Darko and, and and everything else that he's done, it sort of didn't stack up for me. So I, I became a lot more open to this idea of, do you know what, I should probably watch this. And for, I don't know how, but I never knew anything about Dirty Dancing. I didn't, know, I didn't know a thing. I didn't know the story. I didn't know anything about how the characters interacted. I knew about the songs, of course, but I didn't know anything about it. So when I, when I, when I came to it, I was like, wait a sec, I might, this is like seeing a brand new movie because I've never, ever, never even seen the trailer for it. So that's how it came into my life. It was sort of one of those classics that I realized I needed to see but I'd always had this sort of chip on my shoulder about it, like, "Wow, well, I'm not watching that; it's a chick flick," um, which was ridiculous, really. And you know, the more you watch it, the more you realise that is ridiculous. So, yeah, that's 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 sort of my, my, my in a nutshell history with it, really.
2: It is quite a fascinating thing because I think generally in in kind of film culture, you tend to have movies for men and movies for women. A lot of people tend to categorise certain films. Oh, well, girls can't like that because it's for boys, uh, and boys can't like that because it's for girls. But I feel like, I mean, A, that's just complete rubbish. Films are films, they're for everyone, they're for every gender and and every type of person. But on the surface, Dirty Dancing is, like you say, it it kind of does kind of have this appeal of a a chick flick, of of a rom-com. It's something that women, a majority of women, really fantasise over and push as, as being a film that they grew up with. It was always like, it was a bit of a formative experience, and like you say, there were certain films in the 80s that that just have resonated throughout time. And I only very recently, for the first time, saw When Harry Met Sally. Same, actually. Seen...
1: Legit, same.
2: <laughs> I'd never seen it before. I'd heard about it. I knew about, you know, the scene in the diner. I knew roughly what it was about. Knew who was in it. But I'd never seen it. And then I happened upon it and I was like, Do you know what, I'm going to watch this. And I absolutely loved it. And I was like, it was one of those experiences where where I thought, well, why haven't I actually watched this before? Like, what is wrong with me? (laughs) Because everyone always told me it was such a great movie, and and it is. So when it came to Dirty Dancing for you, was it literally a case of, right, I'm going to find it on a streaming service and I'm going to watch it? Like, did you just make a decision to say, right, I'm going to watch it tonight?
1: No, it was actually during lockdown. So when the cinemas were able to open again, um... The, the local cinemas. It was like June or July last year, 2020. Um, and me and my girlfriend, Sam, we we, they, they, we walked past our very old local cinema where, you know, I'm talking old school, old school, old school cinema. And they because they didn't have any new films coming out, apart from Tenet, they, they, they started showing old stuff, Top Gun and all sorts of different ones like that. And we, we saw a few of them. And on the same day, on a Sunday, it was it was fairly crappy weather, and we were walking past. And uh, the morning no, not in the morning. The afternoon showing the like the matinee was Back to the Future, which she'd never seen, and yeah. then the evening was Dirty Dancing that I'd never seen. And it, w- it was it was quite a nice day because we went and saw Back to the Future, then we went and got nice. some food from this this bar that was open thankfully, uh, and then came back and watched Dirty Dancing immediately after it. So we, we sort of had this. Um, this quid pro quo going on. And, you know, she, w- she was watching Back to the Future for the first time because I told her that she'd just, you know, she, she absolutely must see it. And she did the same with me and Dirty Dancing. That's how it came about. And like I said, it was always in, 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 in my mind over the la- I don't know, the last five, six, even ten years to watch it. But that's how it came about. Just complete serendipity walking past this cinema. And, uh, yeah, so it was only maybe six, seven months ago.
2: That's amazing. I do have to ask, did she like Back to the Future?
1: Yes, yeah, she did. We even watched it. We watched the other two after that as well, which was uh, which was oh, quite cool.
2: cool. That actually sounds like a really awesome day. <laughs> that sounds like the best day ever. That must have been actually a really cool experience because I never saw Dirty Dancing on the big screen. I've seen Back to the Future on the big screen, but not Dirty Dancing. It is more special to see it at the cinema rather than at home. It always has been, and it always will be. So, yeah, I'm quite jealous of your day. I think that sounds amazing.
1: It Um, is pretty cool stuff like that, I have to admit. (laughs) I've seen, like, like Rocky and and some of the Batman films and, um, you know, all of those, like, some of the Star Wars films we've seen. In fact, we saw uh, Star Wars and Jurassic Park on the big screen with, like, a live orchestra doing the soundtrack. So anything like that, I'm just so much in for that. It was so good. Oh,
2: that just sounds incredible, especially uh, Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park is one of my absolute favorites that was like a formative film for me I've mentioned it on this podcast before because I did an episode back on Jurassic Park and um, literally one of my best experiences in my whole life was my grandparents taking me to see Jurassic Park and I don't think they realized that it was going to be quite as scary as it was Um, (laughs) but uh, but, yeah it's just one of those things that you just always remember and I guess for me and Dirty Dancing it's always been one of those Not clandestine films, but this film came out in uh, 87. So I was quite young when this came out, but it was one of those that as you're kind of getting towards like maybe 11 or 12, you start to go to sleepovers, it was the film that we always used to put on and it was kind of seen as a bit naughty, but it was like naughty, but acceptable naughty. Because your mum, or your friend's mum, was perfectly happy and fine for you to watch it because she liked it. And it was, obviously, it had raunchy bits, but it wasn't too raunchy. When I watched it, I think I must have been about 11 or 12. And I didn't really get it. I just thought, oh, it's just a fun movie about a girl and she meets a boy and they do some dancing and they love each other. And that was that was <laughs> basically it. I didn't understand any of the underlying themes. Uh, I didn't understand the whole abortion thing. I just thought Penny was poorly. It just flew straight over my head. But I think that's part of the appeal of this movie is I think it does tackle these really serious and interesting themes. It's got these layers of complexity in this movie, but it does it in a way that it doesn't necessarily point the finger at it and go, oh, we're talking about abortion now. It's very kind of under the radar. It is essentially a coming-of-age movie. It might be a nice idea to maybe kind of touch on some of the themes that it actually goes through. One of the things that I was not aware of, so completely flew over my head, not only the fact that it was an abortion, but the fact that abortion was actually illegal. And there's a specific scene where Baby asks her father for money and her father says, oh, it's not illegal, is it? And that kind of never really clicked with me because abortion's always been legal. So so the thought of it being illegal, I've never really clicked that it was illegal. But you kind of realise, well, this is, say, in the 60s. And, you know, it was a completely different time, especially for women. The thing that I really like about this movie is the fact that Baby never questions anything. Although she's kind of this pure, virginal, innocent girl. She never questions Penny's choice and what Penny needs and what Penny wants. She never asks Penny if she's sure if she wants an abortion. She just supports her. She just tries her best to get it done, whether that's by getting money from her father or just getting her father to help, even though she knows it's going to get her in trouble. The movie kind of skips over the whole backstreet abortion thing so we don't really know what actually happened but it makes it very clear that the person who was doing this was maybe not as qualified as we're originally led to believe the whole abortion thing is a really kind of important linchpin in the movie because without that baby wouldn't actually have an excuse to partner with johnny because johnny and penny have always been partners and so I kind of find that quite fascinating. Obviously, you will have watched this film and known straight away (laughs) what was going on.
1: (laughs) Well, to be honest, it's one of those... It it was actually one of those surprising themes. So, like I said, I came into this without any knowledge of what this was. So I thought it was just going to be sort of Stand By Me, quote-unquote, for girls. Like you said, it was clearly a coming-of-age movie. And so I thought it was going to be sort of... Even though Stand By Me, you know, touches on death and it touches on things that are particularly uncomfortable when you're at that age, but maybe less so as you grow up, you know, it's really that loss of innocence. And I thought dirty dancing was just going to be that, you know, loss of innocence, um, told through the medium of dancing in a way and with people that you shouldn't do. And so that was one of the most fascinating aspects of the movie for me, this entire, this entire, um, mcguffin of the abortion you know this thing that, that that catalyzes the rest of the movie because it like it throws a load of the themes together like you said it, it throws baby meeting being johnny and it, it throws the class debate together um and kind of b- brings in jerry Orbach's uh, assumptions about johnny and also highlights the social issues around the time like you said about this doctor being a bit of a rogue doctor kind of just town to town, city to city, performing these illegal abortions, like that, it, that entire thing was the biggest surprise to me. Just the whole, wow, I didn't expect that to be so hard hitting and actually to even be there. And I think that's the main reason I was so pleasantly surprised by it because it was, it was, you know, it, it wasn't Roadhouse where it was bad guy, lone wandering good guy, damsel in distress. It was... Wow, look at these different layers to this, and you can read into it what you will. And I think that's why, the, like the legacy of it, is so interesting. Because as a kid, you put it on at, 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 at the sleepovers. I assumed as a kid it was just that it was just the, the the you know the usual kind of chick flick. But when you actually watch it, the layers upon layers upon layers are just so surprising when you see it for the first time. And as you get older, I think you appreciate them more. So yeah, that's what fascinated me about it, to be honest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on class. And I think that's always been a really fascinating aspect to me as well. Just moving on, like what you say, about Jake Houseman's assumptions of Johnny, that he's the one who got Penny in trouble. Because obviously Johnny just basically turned around and said he was responsible for Penny, in the sense of, I am her dance partner, I'm her friend, therefore I'm responsible for her. But obviously, Baby's father takes that in a completely different way, and basically looks on Johnny as as a lower-class citizen, basically, because we kind of gather that he's not really had much of an education. He's basically come from a completely different background to Baby, that his family basically want him to join the painters and decorators union, and that he's essentially... and, And this is something I don't want to touch on a bit later, but most movies like this, they will frame a young girl as being the sex symbol of the movie the one that is maybe used for certain things. And and in this movie, it's quite fascinating because Johnny is kind of framed as the sex symbol of the movie in a sense that that's the way he's shot, the way that the camera kind of lingers on him. The movie is trying to show us Johnny through baby's eyes. Johnny is actually a victim in this movie from where he's standing from being of a quote-unquote lower uh, social status uh, he's working at this resort which is a wealthy resort i mean the people who visit this resort are wealthy they are doctors they're lawyers the people who are working at the resort people like um oh the character name escapes me now um but the one who's going to medical school and then obviously you have the dancers And the dancers are very much seen as pretty much the lowest of the low uh, with regards to, to class and status. Johnny is basically used consistently. And the abuse of power by these women who clearly have the wealth and the social status, he kind of feels like... He has to, in inverted commas, entertain these wives. He's there to teach them dance. But he feels like if I don't sleep with these women and have relationships with these women, that I'm going to get fired. And the fact that it's a man in this situation. Because, like I say, usually I feel like it would be a young woman put in this situation. Um, It kind of highlights the fact that, you know, actually, men can be victims too. It doesn't make them any less of a man. Johnny Castle is like this epitome of manly man in this movie. He's got the grace and the sex appeal and the charisma and all of these things that we expect from a leading man. You kind of look at it on the surface and you go, oh, well, yeah, it's a fun movie about dancing. And then you pick apart all of these little things, like you said earlier, and then it becomes so much more interesting how this movie actually got made in the first place because it feels... So different to anything else that came out at that time to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the, the interesting points, isn't it, with with the entire thing? Just this this unexpected depth. Like I said earlier, this and and, and like you said, it, it, it's. I noticed it throughout, like the exploitation of the male lead character. You know, being expected to sleep with all the the the, the kind of women, but then also like this almost welcomed cuckolding of the, the husband, you know, they were just like, yeah, go on, just take her off my hands for a little bit and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll play golf or whatever, sit by the lake and just look forward, whatever. And it, so it was it, it was interesting to see that role reversed and, and actually something that, that you wouldn't expect from a 1987 movie necessarily. And because this sounds really weird, but there was no, or it didn't, I'm not a film expert, but it, there didn't seem to be the presence of mind back then for that to be something that should be considered it, you know it 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 doesn't strike me as something that um, anyone would be pressured to do you know rightly or wrongly it was just because it, it was it was something that was happening even then something that's always happened you know exploitation is not 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 gender specific but it was always it was always the leading act- actress that was like you said seen as the person that could be potentially exploited. And when you've got someone that looks like Patrick Swayze and performs like he does, he's always the strong male protagonist. And in this one, he's sort of the anti-hero. You know, he's sort of the, well, I'm, I am I kind of do bad things because the world expects me to do bad things. And I, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll have to do the things that these other characters want me to do. And it, it, that is another fascinating layer to it. And I have to admit, I did notice it and and-, and Throughout the movie, you know the, the 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 classic example is when the 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 I can't remember the lady's name, but the the kind of the wife that he's sleeping with, because husband won you know he's completely all right with it. When she finds out that he and baby have got a thing going on, like she's the one that 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 throws the kind of spanner in the works, and you just think what a what an interesting trait to show on film. In a movie from 1987, you just simply wouldn't think it would be there. Does that does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate what you're saying that exploitation has no gender in the real world. This movie does kind of reverse the roles quite substantially. I mean, the only people that it really doesn't are are the Housemans in general, um and and to an extent the Kellermans, because they are very much a cookie cutter. You have a successful father who's obviously a doctor and we don't really find out much about Marjorie but we can obviously assume that she's just a homemaker and that she's just been raising these daughters and that they obviously expect certain things from their daughters mainly to marry well um I mean the eldest daughter Lisa <laughs> basically they want her to marry uh, this medical student and Dr Houseman approves of Robbie He thinks that this is an upstanding, sensible, polite young man. Literally, just because he's a medical student. Normally, the antagonist would be clearly an antagonist. Um, He wouldn't be, like, a college-educated medical student, you know, working as a waiter in his spare time to, to make money, to go to med school. Everything in this movie is kind of a bit backwards, I really do think that's part of this enduring appeal, because when you talk about Dirty Dancing, pretty much everyone knows what Dirty Dancing is, because it's such a part of like the cultural lexicon. You mentioned Patrick Swayze, and obviously the sort of roles that he was known for. So I think I completely kind of understand where you were coming from when you looked at him as a person and looked at the roles that he was portraying, and then kind of questioned, well... Hang on a sec, why is he in a coming-of-age, like, chick flick movie with dancing? That makes no sense. (laughs) Like, why would he choose that role? We kind of see the exterior of Patrick Swayze. And, um, (laughs) well, (laughs) I see the exterior of Patrick Swayze, and I think, well, you know, he's just a really good-looking, sexy guy who can really, really dance. And there is nothing sexier than a guy who can dance. That is the gospel truth. There must have been something about this role that he wanted and that he really wanted to portray. And obviously, I think he very much thought the dancing was secondary or tertiary to the actual character of of Johnny and what Johnny was actually going through. And I think it is very easy in this movie to look at it from a, a very surface level point of view and go, oh, well, you know, he's good looking and he can dance.
1: Well, I think that's that's why it endures, isn't it? Because when you are younger, you you do see that surface level, and that's there's so many films that you don't necessarily see the depths of until you get older. You know, you see a, a range of different things, and I think what what seems to have happened with Dirty Dancing is that you've got this this perfect storm of of everything going on. You've got everything from the perfect location to the 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 songs being just just so well well in fitting with, with, with the entire theme and the time. And they've, they've stood the test of time, not by not dating, but by dating in such a way that they just are completely representative of a specific time period. And you, have got everything, like I said, you've got everything that matches up. You've got a good supporting cast in in, you know, Jerry Orbach and so on. You've got a, a, a what looks to be a vulnerable lead actress, but actually when it comes down to it, she can really hold her own against the the strong kind of will of Patrick Swayze. And, and plus the production story that you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, all, all of these different things come together into this kind of bizarre, perfect storm. It doesn't happen that often, you know, in, in, in movie kind of, uh, I guess in, in in movie history. There's There are certain films that just... Happen to land on the right things at the right time. Like, I think from the 80s, you've got sort of a... Well, certainly from the 70s, you've got sort of a, um, a, a, a Star Wars thing, you know, from a, a kind of more blokey perspective. You know, you've got your Batman film from 89 that just happened to get everything right, from the Prince soundtrack through to the Tim Burton landscape, through to the Keaton casting. And Dirty Dancing feels like it's one of those where everything mm. was a challenge, but everything landed you know, everything just fit. Um yeah. And maybe that's why it's been so tough to replicate it, like with the sequels and anything else that's you know, whatever step up or st- whatever, some of the other films that have kind of in that vein. Maybe that's why they've not quite been able to emulate it, because it's just you can't you just can't capture that lightning in a bottle that often.
2: Yeah. Totally agree with you with the whole kind of lightning in a bottle thing, because that's kind of the phrase that comes to mind. There's not many films throughout modern cinema that I feel like have really captured that kind of zeitgeist of being so like culturally relevant, aesthetically relevant, interesting and layered and complex and enjoyable and and kind of all of those things. I mean, the only kind of the most recent ones that would spring to mind for me, um, and I think uh, I mentioned this actually back in the episode that I didn't know, but something like Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl because as a pirate movie that was basically doomed to failure pretty much straight away as a pirate movie which they've never made money and the fact it was based on a ride and then you know you had Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow and it was like all of these things were kind of coming together and 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 somehow it works spectacularly well but then like you said about sequels and things Pirates of the Caribbean in a similar vein you know they've pushed out multiple sequels to that and nothing's kind of clicked it's it you can't you can't replicate that lightning in a bottle again it's actually physically impossible it would seem to, to kind of do that a second time um and I, and I do feel like that about dirty dancing because like you said they have tried it's not like they haven't tried you know they, they've tried multiple sequels i believe they're doing like a reboot now, with Jennifer Grey, or some sort of reboot slash sequel, well, I'll probably talk about that a bit later at the end, but they're constantly trying to replicate anything that kind of captures a moment like this. And, and I mean, bless Hollywood, <laughs> they will carry on trying, and, and nothing's going to stop them from trying to make money, because essentially, you know, this is about making money, and Dirty Dancing is just made a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, not just kind of through its initial release, but over the years. You know, you mentioned the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is just consistently sells. <laughs> like, it's just always selling. People are always interested in this story and in, and in the music. If it's okay. I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about Johnny. I thought it might be nice to talk a little bit about Baby. She is interesting in the fact that, obviously, they cast Jennifer Grey, And, I mean, Jennifer Grey is is a beautiful girl. But when you look at, like, 80s female protagonists, they don't look like Jennifer Grey. They tended to be kind of more... I feel like I want to phrase this in a way where I'm not saying that Jennifer Grey is unattractive because I think she's absolutely stunning. But I think the Hollywood, the Hollywood aesthetic of, of women and girls in the 80s was different. You know, it was kind of maybe more towards the blonde big-boobed kind of lady. You know, maybe a little bit more the look of, like, Cynthia Rhodes. plays Penny. It's also incredibly beautiful. But I kind of feel like a normal movie, in inverted commas, would have maybe put Cynthia Rhodes front and centre. But I really love the fact that Baby looks like a normal teenage girl. Like, that is really appealing to me. It kind of dispels these tropes, these, like, rom-com tropes of that only the very pretty girls deserve attention. And I kind of feel like from that point of view, that Baby is a character that a lot of women and young girls can actually relate to. And maybe that's one of the reasons why this movie still resonates so much in the fact that she's not a conventionally attractive woman.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think what, what was interesting about the storyline as well is the fact that, you know, Johnny Patrick Swayze's character Johnny really doesn't really care too much for for for, for the the character of Baby in the early instances of, of of the movie and the the early parts of the movie and 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 it, I think what is what is fascinating and I imagine this through the eyes of a teenager, you know, it's the everyman and the everywoman story. This idea that you know this person on a pedestal might like someone like me, and 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 I think that's why it's so relatable because. You you do have that, like you said, that real cliched look. You know the Kim Bassinger look, the Meg Ryan look, the the eighties. You know the 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 lead actress from the eighties style look. And you're right, it, it, it's not Jennifer Grey. Is not that person. It, it, she's she's her own person. She she has her own personality in this movie and. I think what's fascinating now when you look at it in 2021 is that, you know, every person is attractive in their own right. And yet Hollywood had not figured that out yet. You know, it only took, it took probably the last three to five years for that to happen. Even if you look at the nineties, we were getting films like, I don't know, I can't think of one, but, um, you know, like, she's all that, I guess. I've not seen that for a hell of a long time, but where it becomes a um, here's this nerdy girl. Oh, and look at that. If she dresses differently, she's not nerdy. She's actually really good looking. You know, even in the 90s, they were still forcing this idea of someone needing to dress and act a certain way to be attractive. And I think that's what's appealing about this character, a baby in, the, in, 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 in 1987, is that this person that the posters and the marketing and the mum characters in this movie have put on this pedestal in Johnny Castle, will like someone through getting to know them mm-hmm. and it's it could happen to us too you know so it becomes relatable on a on a on a simplistic level you know this could happen to me and it's also again representative of the depth that i don't know if they built it in I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm going to give them the credit for it but you know the depth that they built into this script writing for dirty dancing because they 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 intended that you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be an accident. So, I think that is a. I think it's a really fascinating part of the story. I, I, I certainly don't think it should be, um, you know, kind of uh, under underrepresented because I think it's an important piece of what makes Dirty Dancing so so timeless. If you like,
2: mm. yeah, I really do think that people can relate to a character like Baby on on many different levels. When obviously this was made in the eighties, it was obviously set in the sixties. And if they did make this movie now, it would probably be set in the late 90s. And, and that kind of makes me feel a bit weird. <laughs> because <laughs> because it, time feels weird in that respect. Like, the 60s feels like such a long time ago. And even in the 80s, the 60s felt like a long time ago. And I think sometimes that is kind of reflected in this movie because I do feel like some selections of things like maybe hair and clothing is a little bit anachronistic because i mean the song i've had the time of my life is an 80s song it's it's not a 60s song and and i really don't think that booty shorts were worn by girls in the 60s like those little denim cut-off shorts that that baby wears Mm -hmm. um i really don't think they were a thing but it it, it's not kind of here to be a true and realistic depiction of the 60s in that way Uh, it's supposed to be a fantasy really it's supposed to be this fantastical coming-of-age story kind of through baby's eyes. And I think that's the most important thing for this movie is that I don't think this movie would work if it was through Johnny's eyes. I think it has to be through baby's eyes because she learns about how it's okay to be who you are. You don't have to be who people want you to be. And it's it's okay for women to be free to explore their own sexuality and not be tied down by oppressive views. And I do kind of feel like Baby, as much as she adores her father, her father's obviously of a different generation and has different views on things. And he's instilling his views in Baby, but she realises that they're the wrong views to have. It's not okay to discriminate against people because of their class or their social status, which is something that he inadvertently tells her that she should be doing. But through her experiences with with johnny and with the dancers she kind of realizes well you know actually these are just people they're no different to her just for the fact that she's a girl who's come from wealth it is the the traditional kind of coming of age story that just happens to include you know subversive styles of dance (laughs)
1: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, um, you know, it, it could be called dirty baseball or dirty soccer or dirty golf or dirty anything like the The, the dirty part of it is, is just, it's the, it's adding the edge yeah. to it. You know, it, it, it's this idea of doing something that's a little bit forbidden. It, it's, it's the walking to find the body and not telling your parents in stand by me. Yeah, It's the hiding ET from your parents. It's 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 putting Jennifer on the on the on the little swing seat outside uh, outside the house in Back to the Future. It's it's the thing that people can't find out about, mm. you know. It's that that idea, that subcultural idea, which I think is, you know, it's juxtaposed against this 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 classist interference from from the father figure, you know. And and what I think is fascinating about that personally is that it's dressed up that the, the classist approach is dressed up in this this sheepskin coat of parenting you know we want the best for our kids and why would we want them to, to to marry anything other than a doctor and why would we why would we not want to vicariously be able to say that our daughter's in the peace corps and thus we benefit from the halo effect of having a daughter that does good work in the world you know it's all dressed up as parenting but really is is always ultimately self-serving for the parents and you see it you see it in real life i've got friends whose mum and dad are, are like that and it's always them who have the children that then rebel and push back and end up doing the things like you know uh, do, you know whatever the, the the exact opposite of what their parents want them to do because they've not been allowed to do their own exploration um and that redemption arc of 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 the Jerry Orback character you know, like the redemp- the small redemption arc at the end um, where he, he pulls the recommendation letter for the the, the the antagonist, if you can call him that, and he, he swings back around to Johnny and, and sees the error of, his, error of his ways. You know, that redemption arc becomes much more satisfying because, like you said, you've seen it through baby's eyes and, 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 and the parent suddenly comes around to realise that, you know, in this ideal world, the kid does do good stuff. And you can be proud of the kid for doing the things that make them happy. And just because what you think is, is good for them, you know, th- th- there becomes an age where they understand what's good for them and they've got to explore and make their own mistakes. So it's there's a lot of classic ideals and tropes wrapped up in that. Um And I feel like movies and, and storytelling over the last 20 years has progressed a lot to um, bring more of that out of being, um, uh, you know, a, a subtext and and certainly... Many more modern movies and, and and storytelling techniques. They they approach that as a a very overt thing that they're trying to handle. But back in eighty seven, you know the, the the subtext was there. You know the parenting, you know, really hiding this this classist nature. I think was fasc- again another fascinating part of the movie.
2: Mm. I think that's kind of a really interesting point to start to wrap stuff up with, because I think we've covered the vast majority of the, the important themes usually i would probably talk for a lot longer but you do have somewhere else to be so yeah what i will do is i will go back to the future now and i will talk about all of the release and the financial bits and bobs future me is back and before we go into the financials and bits and bobs i need to do the obligatory keanu reference so this is a part of the podcast where i try to link the movie that i'm featuring with keanu reeves and um i mean this is a very tedious one but it's genuinely the only thing i could find and it was basically that keanu was photographed with a date at the 18th anniversary of dirty dancing at the cineplex odeon century plaza cinema in century city california So, clearly, he is a fan of this movie. I'm not entirely certain he can dance like Patrick Swayze, though. That might be a mark against Keanu. But never mind, Keanu, never mind. You can't be brilliant at everything. You're perfect in every other way, apart from you probably can't dance like Patrick Swayze. But, uh, so, let's talk about the release of this movie. So... Dirty Dancing was released on the 21st of August 1987 in the US and it basically jumped in at number four in the domestic US box office upon its release. But basically, this was a movie that lived or died by word of mouth and the word of mouth for Dirty Dancing would actually increase its takings in its third week by 11% until it basically peaked at number two at the US box office. It would remain in the top 10 for 11 weeks, and often increased its takings compared to the previous week. So this was a movie that was only ever going to grow in its reputation, just basically from people going to see it, loving it, telling their friends, and they then going to see it. I mentioned earlier that the budget was halved for this movie originally when it was taken on by Vestron. The budget for this movie is kind of contended, um, because... Some outlets online say it was made for $5 million, and then other outlets say it was made for $6 million. So basically, it was made for between $5 and $6 million. But, you know, this was a cheap movie all in all, especially if you bear in mind the fact that it what it went on to actually gross. It would go on to make $63.9 million in the US alone and a further $150 million elsewhere for a total of $214 million worldwide. Uh, That doesn't, of course, take into account VHS or DVD sales. It became the first movie to sell a million copies on VHS, and, as of 2005, was still selling a million DVDs per year. Over 10 million copies have been sold on DVD alone. Despite the success of Dirty Dancing, Vestron would file for bankruptcy in 1990 and be bought out by Live Entertainment, who were then bought out by Artisan Entertainment, who were then bought by Lionsgate Entertainment, and Lionsgate now own the rights to Dirty Dancing. And as I said, while critics were initially mixed at Dirty Dancing, and still kind of are actually, uh, audiences loved it, Uh, often went back for repeat viewings on its initial run, have continued to support re-releases, continue to buy it on DVD, continue to buy the soundtrack. I'm going to talk about the soundtrack in a little bit as well. Um, And basically, people genuinely adore this movie for so many reasons. When it came to awards, at the 60th Academy Awards, it was nominated for and won the Best Original Song for I've Had the Time of My Life. It also was nominated and won a Golden Globe for Best Original Song for I've Had the Time of My Life. And a Grammy for best pop performance by a duo, but not best song written for a motion picture. So it was just the performance of Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes that got the Grammy. The music for Dirty Dancing is often cited as one of the best movie soundtracks ever, with songs by the Ronettes, Otis Redding, The Four Seasons, as well as Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes, and Patrick Swayze himself. He co-wrote and sang She's Like the Wind on the soundtrack, Demand for the album meant it spent 18 weeks at number 1 on the US Billboard 200. It's gone platinum 11 times over, with over 32 million copies sold worldwide. And it also has a sequel album called More Dirty Dancing, which was released in 1988. So, there has been a prequel to this movie. Uh, We don't like to talk about it, but it happened. Uh, 2004's Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Uh, Patrick Swayze was paid a reported $5 million just to cameo as a dance teacher. It's also had a popular stage version, which I've been to see. It's had a made-for-TV version. It's been on various tours and also has a 2017 remake starring Abigail Breslin. And additionally now, a sequel has been announced with Jennifer Gray's involvement. But there's not really much more news on that. Um, so that kind of summarises the release information. So I guess we'll go back to the past now and go back to past me and Mark. I think it's probably a really good time to kind of finish. I would love to talk more about this with you. (laughs) But we've sadly run out of time, so we can't. But it's been absolutely fascinating to get your point of view, genuinely. I really love that you love this movie because I I genuinely think it's there's so much to love in this movie and it's not just the fact it contains dirty dancing so I mean a, a massive thank you Mark for for coming on Verbal Diorama and you know genuinely I've had the time of my life doing this episode and and I owe it all to you
1: so, so <laughs> smooth
2: smooth um so um so yeah uh thank you so much for coming on have you got time to just plug yourself
1: oh yeah i i should probably just talk about the star wars show just if you're into star wars i do a podcast which is called Spark of Rebellion with a friend of mine, Gaz. So just check it out. Do a search for Spark of Rebellion podcast, and that's that's the best place to interact with me because we have a, a lot of good fun over on that, uh, on that show. But um, this has been brilliant. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I know it's not the normal format, so thanks for making an exception.
2: <laughs> it's been a genuine joy to have Mark Asquith on this podcast. And obviously, if you are a Star Wars fan, please check out Spark of Rebellion. Uh, he is a fantastic podcaster, And, you know, he works in the business, so he really does know his stuff about podcasting. There are no social media thoughts this episode, because it is running a little on the long side for being a guest episode. Uh, And it has been a little bit different to normal episodes, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. So really, uh, thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Dirty Dancing. If you did enjoy this episode or any other episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by other people by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, you can retweet or like posts on social media or you can simply just tell your friends and family about Verbal Diorama. There are no episode recommendations this month purely because I kind of looked and I don't think I've covered anything like Dirty Dancing that could be comparable to Dirty Dancing Um, but if you are interested in another great guest episode then I would recommend episode 65 which was Ghostbusters 2016 yes that Ghostbusters not the original and that was with the wonderful incomparable Simon Brew and uh, yeah we had a great time talking about Ghostbusters so I guess that would be my episode recommendation Uh, next episode we are going to be traveling to dystopian 2027 uh, We're going to be sticking in the United Kingdom though Obviously And I'm going to be covering Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men This is a movie that i wanted to feature For such a long time I'm so delighted that I'm finally getting around To doing Children of Men It is a very prescient Sci-fi action thriller uh, it's about infertility, war, global depression and police states So really upbeat and a really fun way to end the month of April If you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama Do you want exclusive episodes? If so, you can sign up to support the show at patreon.com verbaldiorama And you get fab perks including exclusive episodes for all patrons and the episode on Division will be out soon. A massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast. They are Simon E, Sharday, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor, Scott, Mark and Brendan. You're like the wind. I have a merch store at teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama if you want to buy merch and stuff. You can email me at verbaldiorama at gmail.com if you wish. Or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the little form. And as always, you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can find articles written by me. I'm writing a new one right now. And Jess is not very happy in the background about that, but never mind. And you can also buy a copy of the magazine as well. And finally... I carried a watermelon. Bye.